everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Much Language, Such Talk. Today you're hearing from me, Eva Maria, and we are dedicating this episode to the International Day of Families that happened on May 15th, just a couple of days ago. To celebrate this, we are finally covering a topic that we at Bilingualism Matters get a lot of questions about, multilingual families. But before we dive in, I want to remind you that you can visit our website, mlstpodcast.com, for resources, links, and transcripts for each episode. So you can read along while listening, if you like, and you can also find links to all the cool projects and people we'll be talking about today. For this episode, we have two wonderful guests today, Dr. Ute Limacher-Ribold and Corina Topalidu. Dr. Ute Limacher-Ribold is a multilingual family language consultant and intercultural communications trainer at Ute's International Lounge. Ute holds a PhD in Romance Philology and has taught Italian historical linguistics at the Department of Romance Studies at the University of Zurich. As a linguist and lifelong international, she offers tailored advice, practical solutions, and support for parents who raise their children with multiple languages and cultures. She helps multilingual families find the most suitable strategies and practical resources to maintain their home languages and cultures whilst learning others. Since 2019, Uta collaborates with Multilingual Parenting at the EU Peach Project and organizes the broadcast Raising Multilinguals Live together with Tetsu Young and Rita Rosenbach. Ute is fluent in German, Italian, French, English, Dutch, and Swiss German, which is really impressive, and improves her fluency in Spanish and Korean at the moment. She currently lives in the Netherlands with her husband and three teenage children who grow up with multiple languages too. And then we have Corina Tupalidu. She's a language teacher in London, originally from Greece. She holds degrees in international relations and organizations, European law, and Spanish language and culture. With her experiences as a student, translator, teacher, and expatriate, she has always been interested in languages. And because of this, she is involved in many activities connected to multilingualism and language learning. For example, Corina is involved in the Peach Project as well, where she supports parents and educators of bilingual children as an ambassador. And she's also a member of language-related associations in the UK, such as the National Association for Language Development and the Curriculum and the Association for Language Learning. Corina is fluent in Greek, Spanish, French, and English, and is a mother of two multilingual children as well. So, welcome! Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Yeah, we're very excited to have you. Thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedules, you know, with work and children, so we can have a discussion, a conversation about multilingual families and everything that comes with that. But before we actually dive into the questions that we have for you, maybe it's best to kind of set the scene and to understand what we mean when we refer to multilingual families. What do we mean with multilingual? Well, uh, with multilingual families, uh, we mean families that have two or more languages, dialects or even sign languages, and they use them on a daily or regular basis. So I base this kind of definition on the one given by François Grosjean, where he says a bilingual or, let's say, a multilingual is someone who regularly uses two or more languages on a, or dialects in their everyday lives. And uh, as I said, I add also sign language, although sign language is not considered a language in all countries yet. So what is most important is that this definition deliberately avoids the expectations in terms of proficiency and age when the languages are acquired or learned. And it puts also the communicative function of languages first. Now, bilingual can be used as umbrella term, actually, for those who use two or more languages. But some also use the term of multilingual when more than one languages are involved. So you'll probably observe that in the past years, people tend to use more multilingual than bilingual, or they use them interchangeably. But if it would, would be strict, actually, the term should be used uh, for countries or societies instead of individuals. For example, in French or Italian, I would rather use the term of uh, plurilingue or plurilingue. So there might be a change in terminology <laughs> at some point there as well towards plurilingual. But uh, the way I use the term, I always use it in uh, correlation with families, so multilingual families. And uh, the family being a micro-society, I think it's still acceptable. Thank you, Ute. That's, uh, I think that's very important to kind of be on the same page when it comes to the definition and also for the listeners to understand what we're referring to when we talk about multilingual families. We at Bilingualism Matters, I mean, the research and public engagement center is called Bilingualism Matters, but we obviously refer to 
one or more languages, right? So it's just kind of to have a clear definition at the start. Yeah, thank you. So how did you develop your interest in languages, Corina? Yes. Uh, so growing up monolingual, my first experience with foreign languages started at school age. I learned English and French at school and studied Spanish and Arabic at university. However, I have to say that it was not until my Erasmus experience in Barcelona that I really realized how fascinating languages can be. And I can say that since then, my interest in language has grown throughout my life. And this is a result of my experiences as a student, as a teacher now. Uh, I have been a translator as well. And of course, now I'm a mom of two trilingual children. And uh, I grew up with multiple languages. First Italian, then German and French at age six, and then English and uh, Latin, also some dead languages later at school. And I was used to switch back and forth between the international community and the languages, of course, and monolingual community where I grew up in, in Italy. So I added also other languages to the plate during my studies and work at the University of Zurich, where I studied French and Italian linguistics and uh, literature and taught also Italian uh, historical linguistics, like you mentioned before. I've always been interested in languages. It's, a, it's part of me. It's just who I am. So I like researching about languages, language contact and change. And I always have some kind of a longitudinal or historical perspective on them. I think it's a bit the déformation professionnelle. Yeah, so we, we definitely have that in common. Uh, I, I share that, that interest. That's great. So we kind of already talked about what languages you speak, but what language is spoken in your family, in the household? So in my case, uh, as I mentioned, I speak Greek, uh, which is my mother tongue, Spanish, English and French. Uh, my husband is a native Spanish speaker who speaks Greek, English and French. So same languages, we share the same languages, but different level. Our older daughter, who is now four years old, she's uh, trilingual. I could say that now she's quite confident using English, Spanish and Greek. And we have a younger member in our family. She's uh, two years old. And she uses those words and she started using some short sentences and she can use the three languages now. That's very cool. And Ute, what about you? Yeah, well, I, um, I speak, as you mentioned before, I speak uh, German, Italian, French, Swiss German and English, uh, a bit of Spanish and a few Italian dialects, Dutch, of course. And I'm currently learning Korean. But in our family, we mainly speak uh, German, English and Dutch. And Swiss German and Italian in this order of frequency. So my husband speaks also Swiss German, German, English, French and Dutch. So it's a great base for a multilingual family to have both parents who speak several languages. And my children also learn to speak uh, French and Spanish at school. And uh, my son um, also is learning a bit of Chinese. So, But they all have different degrees of fluency in these languages, which is very obvious in multilingual families, I think. Well, that's that's really interesting. And it must be, especially for an outsider coming in, that must be quite an adventure to experience. And I would love to be a fly on the wall just to kind of see <laughs> how you guys communicate at home. That would be really interesting. That would be a whole research on its own, probably. <laughs> so how are, because I'm guessing that all of these languages have different, are used differently. So what can you, like, is it context specific? Is it situation specific? How are these languages used by your family? So generally speaking, uh, German is the main language we use in the family. But uh, with school-related topics, uh, we use usually English, uh, or my children use English, and then we keep uh, the English in these specific contexts. And uh, my husband and I use English on a daily basis for our work. We live in the Netherlands, so Dutch uh, has become one of our most important and dominant languages in the family as well. I personally make sure to foster all my languages throughout uh, the week. So I can share with you my personal use of uh, the languages as all our family members have different schedules with regards to the languages. So I have uh, Dutch, English and German every day, like my children as well and my husband. And then I have dedicated uh, days. <laughs> on Mondays and Tuesdays, I focus on French and Italian. So I read books and uh, follow news, and I have most of my clients who um, speak French and Italian on Mondays and Tuesdays, and Wednesdays is rather English and German, and uh, Thursdays I squeeze in a little bit of Spanish for myself, and Fridays is all languages, Saturdays is my Korean, and Sundays is our Swiss German family language day. So this is where we foster 
the if you want the weakest um, language in our household, as it is the only spoken only language that we have. So we um, decided together with our children to have one full day where we only speak uh, Swiss German. I think that's fascinating. That's and also the discipline that you have. I wish I had that. I wish I had the the discipline to say like, okay, on Mondays uh, I read Dutch news and I only like read Dutch books and all of that. I don't, I don't have that. <laughs> so maybe I'll take you as an example. <laughs> There are moments where, where this whole system uh, is disturbed somehow or is not, it's falling apart, but I try to stick to it as much as I can. Even if it's maybe instead of uh, five hours, it's uh, half an hour that that's enough. That makes sense because life is unpredictable. Absolutely. Yeah. And Corina, how do you go about that? So how are those languages used? Let's see. I speak mainly Greek with the girls and my husband speaks Spanish. My husband and I always have spoken Spanish between us, so we continue. The girls are, use the English language at the daycare and the minority language, uh, so Spanish and Greek at home. However, I have to say that I have noticed that lately, when they play together without us being around, English is their preferred language. I absolutely understand as they spend the, the day at the daycare. So this is what they are more familiar with. At home, generally, we don't use English. Of course, we need to speak English for our jobs. We need to speak English outside of, of the home we live in, in London. So this is what we use. But at home, we don't use English as a family, except if there is a need. So when we have international friends who do not speak our, our languages, we need to speak English. And this is absolutely fine. So I speak to the girls in English and they reply to English to me. But of course, as you know, unfortunately, it hasn't happened for long due to all the COVID-19 restrictions. So it's a language that we don't use at home now. Oh, yeah, that's that's interesting. And yeah, I mean, if the children are used to using English in like a playing context, that would make sense if they continue using that language, right? Yes, we have learned some good strategies, uh, how to make them replying in our language. But yeah, it's not always easy. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I mentioned in the introduction, and now Uta, you refer to clients. So you are a consultant when it comes to languages and multilingual families. Can you tell us more about what that job entails? Yes. Well, in uh, 2014, I started my business, Uta's International Lounge, to support uh, international families who usually are also multilingual and multicultural and whose children grow up abroad. So the reason for this was that I observed since I was a little girl already that internationals uh, tend to struggle with finding ways to maintain their home languages and cultures when living abroad or cross-culturally, especially when the parents have uh, different cultural and linguistic backgrounds. And when the families move countries, uh, which means that the language needs change and shift. So in my practice, I help families maintain their home languages and cultures during their international uh, more or less mobile life. And I focus on uh, effective intercultural communication, actually, among these multilingual parents and then the whole family. So starting from very beginning, from the very beginning, uh, even among couples before they have children. And then throughout the, the childhood or the international lifespan. So what I do, I offer the consultations and also training programs for parents and professionals. One of these trainings is called Enjoy Raising Children with Multiple Languages. And I chose this as an acronym, actually. And it is aimed at parents from uh, zero to four, then four to seven, seven to 10 and 10 to 18 year old children and professionals who work with multilingual children. So in my work, I have a child-centered approach. So what I help parents with is if they wonder, for example, how to transmit their languages to their children, when to introduce new ones, what languages to maintain after international moves, how to support the school language when it's not one of the home languages, how to respond to people who are not supportive, and what to do when children don't respond in the target language how to motivate children to speak the home languages, how to foster literacy skills in the home language in addition to the school language, what to do when expectations are not met, and many more. So I work closely with uh, also speech therapists and special educational needs experts, with uh, baby sign language trainers as well, and other professionals who support language development in children. So it's not only me, it's also others that I collaborate with. 
I also help these parents decide what school to choose for their children and make them aware of what effect the school language can have on their children's home language development, for example. The fact is that I firmly believe that every parent should have access to quality information uh, when it comes to raising children with multiple languages and cultures, because, um, I mean, on the internet, you can find all kinds of things, depending on what you're looking for. Maybe you don't get all the responses. So I organize some things uh, for free, like every Wednesday, uh, every last Wednesday of the month, I hold free online meetings on multilingualism that take place via Zoom. I also have a Facebook group called Multilingual Families, where parents, educators, researchers, and others can share their experience, questions, research, and they can connect and support each other. It's very important that there is mutual support and understanding. And uh, together with Tetsu Young from Ask Tetsu and Rita Rosenberg from Multilingual Parenting, every first and third Tuesday of the month, we have a broadcast called Raising Multilinguals Live, where we interview professionals and parents on topics of raising children with multiple languages. So this is, uh, in a bigger nutshell, what I'm doing. That's fantastic. And I'm sure the examples that you gave of like the questions you address, I'm sure that resonates with a lot of families that or parents that are listening to this podcast. So it's very, very good that you make the information accessible for everyone. That's fantastic. So talking about your professional work, uh, in the introduction, I also mentioned that the both of you are involved in the EU Peach Project. Can you tell us more about what that is? Yes, I do collaborate uh, together with Multilingual Parenting, which is an organization led by Rita Rosenbach at the Peach Project, which is an EU-funded project within the Erasmus Plus program. Peach stands for Preserving and Promoting Europe's Cultural and Linguistic Heritage Through Empowerment of Bilingual Children and Families. And you can find more about this on the website that is uh, bilingualfamily.eu. So it was launched in 2019. Uh, between the University of Ghent in Belgium, the family language coach Rita Rosenbach, and her Finnish company, uh, Multilingual Parenting, where I collaborate with, and the communication company uh, PMF in Italy. The project aims to support bilingual families and provides concrete guidance, actually, for parents raising bilingual children, as well as provides practical support to educators on how to support, maintain, and develop a child's home language. Within this project, we have published a guide for parents, How to Raise a Bilingual Child, which contains research-based information about bilingual development, as well as expert advice and a range of ready-to-use activities for practicing language at home. So the guide is now available for free in six languages, English, French, German, Italian, Romanian, and Spanish for now. Maybe there will be others, we don't know. And uh, at the end of this year, there will also be a guide for educators available on the site. So on the website, you can find also more information about this project and also resources to foster the languages at home. So, and uh, as you mentioned before, since February 2021, I'm also one of the more than 100 Peach ambassadors. And I hand it over to Corina to maybe talk a little bit more about uh, our work that we are doing together for Peach. Yes, I can speak about our role as ambassadors. We support the project's positive message about multilingualism. We have high-quality training that covers the main aspects of raising and educating bilingual and multilingual children. And of course, we share this information, relevant information, to parents and educators. I need to say here that uh, I have shared it with a lot of parents, with many colleagues of mine, many teachers. And after sharing the guide, most of the parents, the most common comment that I have from parents, it's thank you, Corina. This is exactly what I needed. And I think this is amazing because this is all the information we I can speak now, not just as ambassador, but as a multilingual mom as well. It's all the information we need, very well written, very well explained in, in some pages. So this is amazing. The project, I can say it's very well organized. Uh, Ute has described it very, very well. And uh, I can say that everyone is very enthusiastic. I'm, I'm really proud to be part of it. That sounds like an amazing project. And it, it must be so rewarding to actually be in such an enthusiastic and multilingual environment as well. That sounds fantastic. 
Now, you have all these resources, but I'm guessing that making the decision to raise multilingual children, to have a multilingual household and everything that comes with it, the challenges, but also the benefits, that is quite a task and it's also quite a difficult decision to make, I'm guessing. So what is the decision-making process for, you know, you maybe as mothers to raise a multilingual family? Well, for us, it was quite natural, I can say. Uh, we never had a detailed plan, but we both agreed quite early that we want to pass our native languages to our kids. What uh, we feel now is that the most natural way for our family is for each parent to speak, read and play in their native language. As I mentioned earlier, I mainly use Greek. My husband mainly uses uh, use Spanish. But of course, that doesn't mean that I don't speak any Spanish or my husband doesn't speak any Greek in front of the girls. It's, we have to be very flexible. When there is a need, we switch language and that, at least with my family, it works perfectly fine. Actually, it is great that both me and my husband, we can communicate in the same three languages. It really helps the dynamic of the family. And I think the most important is that we both value equally the three languages. We know why we want to pass it to the girls. We know that uh, all of them are, are, you know, we feel that it's their very value from, from everyone in the family. Yes, and I could say all of the above <laughs> for our family as well. So for us, it was never a question not to raise our children with our languages. It was more a question of what language to uh, transmit first. So when our son was born, we were living in Italy and I was living in an Italy or and working in an Italian uh, context, but still... I wanted to pass on also Italian to my child because we, we didn't know whether we would move to another country or not. It was quite, the probability was very high that we would at some point. So I said, I, I want to start with Italian. And it was the, the most spontaneous language to speak with my child, with my son when he was born. So we made the decision at the beginning to pass on uh, Swiss German and Italian in an Italian context, but also German as the language that my husband and I were talking to each other at that time. But then when we moved to the Netherlands and my twin daughters were born a, a year later, actually the whole situation changed. So I'm not going into details <laughs> because it would take too long, but let's say that our uh, main languages shifted. They are still all in the picture, but we put more focus on German as it was a language that at some point we decided together with our children to focus on more. And Italian got a little bit in the background. Also because we didn't have enough other people in our life who would foster this language on a daily basis. And it was too much for me to keep this, keep doing this. And uh, so I must say the decision-making process, it is a process. It's not something that we decide at the beginning, at least not for our, our family. And that stands for that for, for the next uh, 15, 18 years. So we had adjusted our strategies along the way several times. That makes sense also when the circumstances change. So you mentioned that, you know, the, the environment, the language of the environment, the exposure and everything, that that, of course, changes as well. And we're going to get more into, like, how important the input is. I like what you mentioned about that you value the same languages and that you want to pass that on to your children because language, the languages that we speak, those are part of who we are, right? That's part of our identity. And it would be a shame if we would deny that to our kids because then they will only know a certain part of who you are as a parent, right? So that's, uh, I think that's a very beautiful message. So when making this decision or the decision process, as you mentioned, Ute, what are some other common factors involved when making a decision like that? Because there might be problems that you might encounter when you as parents don't share the same languages, right? Or when, you, when one of the parents is monolingual, for example. So what are those factors? Do they play a role as well? I think they, they do play a role and a fundamental role. Now, in our family, they didn't because we were lucky that uh, my husband and I speak the same languages. And that I also learned his language, uh, Swiss German, quite well which, as I said before, is a, is a spoken language only. So we can support each other. But in, in other settings where one parent does not understand or does not speak uh, the partner's language, there need to be other kind of strategies or agreements at hand. And this depends really on, on every family. But I, I can maybe compare this to the fact that my parents-in-law are monolingual, rather monolingual, Swiss-German. 
So for them, of course, uh, hearing me speak Italian or even German, high German, Standard Deutsch, with my children is already a step forward. But they have been so supportive, I think, because I was very determined and strict in this. So I I would not accept a no. And <laughs> that was maybe my influence on it. But I think it's also because they knew what I was doing. And uh, they saw that my husband and I were on the same page, which is, uh, as I said before, the the first step to take, to make sure that the parents are on the same page and that they can support each other. And this, I must say, even if you do not understand or speak your partner's language, but that you value at least the language of the partner. Corina, do you want to add something to this? Uh, yes, for us, other factors uh, that played the role in the decision was that we have monolingual family members as well in the wider picture, you know, of the family, like monolingual grandparents. So it's it's very important for us that the girls can communicate with them. Also, I don't know, personally, I believe that if the language is involved, it's easier to transmit traditions and it might help them define, you know, their identity. Language and culture, I believe they are very well connected, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, that's a very good point. Absolutely. And I think also, well, languages come with culture. And uh, when there is a motivation to be able to speak with extended family, peers or friends or whoever with the community, then there is a way to get there. So the motivation, I would put it really in bold letters. <laughs> Actually, I think it's also the best strategy for us because I know my girls haven't seen the Spanish family and the Greek family for long. So now we use video calls. And it really helps them because, of course, I'm the only input of Greek here, but sometimes it's not enough. So I know they really want to speak with the grandparents. Uh, the grandparents can read some books. They play some games. You know, they play some games with uh, some games with them. And it really helps. Grandparents are the best, aren't they? <laughs> so now that we talked about, like, how you decided to raise your children multilingually to reap the benefits I'm guessing that there's also some difficulties. Maybe you have to overcome some prejudices in daily life. I don't know if your, maybe your parents-in-law had a couple of like prejudices when you said that you were going to raise your children multilingually. Maybe not. Maybe they were supportive from the get-go. That's fantastic. But I'm guessing that not everybody is as supportive. So what would be some of the difficulties that you might be encountering if you have examples? Yes, I can give you an example, actually. It's a very technical example now. Uh, well, lately, our daughter, the older one, she's four, as we said, she uses English a lot at home. So as I mentioned, we know very well, we have to be very consistent with our languages. We have learned some strategies, you know, to help her respond in the minority languages. However, I have to say here that as a, as a busy mom of two in London, It's not always easy. You know, sometimes kids are just tired or you are in a hurry and you need to communicate quickly. So I would say that it's not always easy to stick to your plan. So you have to be very flexible. We have a plan. I know I need to speak Greek. When she doesn't respond, I know very well the theory, what I need to do, but it's not always applicable. It's, it's, I'm in a hurry. I need to communicate with my daughter. We need to go to a, a ballet class or anywhere. So it has to be quick and it's impossible always to stick. I think this is one of, of the difficulties I have in everyday life. That makes perfect sense. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I, I can relate to that. And I think it's, it's the reality in, uh, in our families and every family, right? And uh, we, we are busy. We try to do the best we can. And again, it's the motivation not only for the children, but also for the parents. Because if you have a child that responds in the other language and you want the communication to flow, Maybe that is a moment where you don't insist too much on the home language, fostering the home language, but rather on the communication. Because if the communication doesn't flow, then all attempts to maintain the home language will also go just down the drain. So I insist again on motivation and also for the parents. So if I feel frustrated to foster my language with my children in given contexts, when the contexts make it not easy for me, then my children will also respond in a certain way, maybe also refusing to, to talk back or to respond in the language that we, we expect them to respond in. So in my experience, now my children are all teenagers, so they uh, go to an English-speaking school and they are immersed into English and in Dutch. 
So maintaining our home languages was more a challenge, I must say, when they started daycare in Dutch and then school in English. For obvious reasons, and I mean this is, uh, <laughs> is uh, proven also by a lot of research. I think the main challenge for us was to keep this motivation going and to adjust our plan or our expectations rather than plans to what our children, every single one, can do with the resources, with the time, with the input that we can provide in that given time. So that was uh, the adjustment that we had to do several times. And then also another uh, difficulty that we encountered in our family was uh, that one of my daughters needed speech therapy and uh, it was given in English and uh, we have other languages as well. So we were fortunate that I had some knowledge about what to watch out for and what to focus on and I could work together with the speech therapist to fill the gaps and to work on uh, what we had to do at home. And I think it's something that many families don't want to think about. I mean, who wants to think about this? But you, I, I have three children. Even if you have two children or one child, it can always happen that at some point your child needs some kind of support, whatever this is, uh, whether it is for sports or whether it is for maths, and it can be for language. So, And knowing this uh, shouldn't keep anyone from <laughs> transmitting the language and insisting, yeah? And, and keeping up with that language. But I think there is a bit of wake-up call for some families I work with when I tell them, okay, you have a speech therapist who, who works with your child maybe two hours, three hours a week, which is a lot usually. Uh, maybe it's only half an hour a week. You have to do the rest of the work at home in your home languages. And many parents then are afraid to go ahead and tend to focus only on the school language because uh, it's the most important one for their children to succeed academically. But I'm always supporting these families and, and telling them, please go ahead and support your child with your home languages as well. And uh, it will maybe take a bit more time and effort, but at the end, in the long run, you will only do them a favor. Yeah, I think that's a very good message. Um, and also what you said about being flexible. I think that's because when you think about um, raising multilingual children and just multilingualism in general, there's a lot of ideology that comes into play, but that just doesn't always play out in real life that way, right? So I think being flexible is probably one of the key messages. That's very important. That's very good. So Corina, you mentioned that, you know, in theory, you, you know what to do, but then in real life, like I said just now, it just doesn't always happen that way. So what are some uh, tips that you sought out for the bilingual family life? So as a secondary language teacher for 10 years now, I believe I know well how young people learn a foreign language. However, as a multilingual mom, I had to look for information about the process of language acquisition. I got a lot of information about family language strategies, about different methods. I read a few books about raising multilinguals. Uh, I had to look for engaging activities. I had to learn some nursery rhymes. And generally, I had to do a lot of homework. It's very important that I participated in some workshops and trainings organized by family language consultants uh, like UTE, and I really recommend them. They can really help, and they, they make you know, multilingual life much easier. That was a great plug for uh, UTE's <laughs> workshops. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, it's it's true. I'll say again, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I can I can totally see that that would help with some of the insecurities and some of the questions you might have. So uh, I think that's a that's a pretty good recommendation. Yeah, and I believe multilingual parents they don't need to expect a problem to arise. You don't have to wait for a problem to arise. Like it's it's nice if you get the information. I work with languages. I work with young people. It's it's things I know. I'm very familiar, but still I learn a lot of things from those workshops. So I think it's very important. If you wait for the problem, I'm not saying it's late. Of course, it's not late. You need to ask advice. But it's so nice when you get informed and you know what you're doing. Uh, and also, you know, many times you have to speak with your partner. Sometimes, you know, the wider family is involved. So sometimes you need to inform them as well. Or as Ute said earlier, she spoke when her children were older. She had to speak about them, about languages. They had to decide their plan. So I think it's nice if you get the information. You You are ready. It's like... You know, the new moms, when you're pregnant, you learn about how babies sleep or maybe the psychology. You read books. This is another, you know, area and very interesting one where you, you need to get informed. Yeah, no, you, you make a very good point. And I think it's a good idea to actually um, 
not wait for a problem to arise, but maybe even get the information beforehand. You might not even need to fall back on that, but it's always it's always good to be equipped to have the right tools, to have the right language to address these problems when they arise, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we already stated that you guys are in different countries, right? Uzi's in the Netherlands, Corina's in the UK, coming from different countries, living in international communities. So, Uta, since you work with a lot of different families, you mentioned that on Mondays and Tuesdays you focus on like French and Italian clients. <laughs> uh, I think that's very neat. But would you give different advice to um, families in different places? Like, do you have to tailor? I mean, I'm guessing it's very individual for each family anyway, but do you have to pay attention to the environment that they're in as well? Yes, Absolutely. If you compare, for example, the UK to the Netherlands, as you mentioned, these two countries now, and you see the, the numbers in, in the Netherlands, for example, 94% of the Dutch speak at least one foreign language and 77% of them speak at least two languages in addition to Dutch. And if I'm not mistaken, in the UK, the situation is that uh, 38% of the UK citizens report that they can speak, uh, and I quote, well enough to have a conversation at least in one language other than English. So in the Netherlands, um, we might eventually be more aware of the importance to support other languages and cultures. And I must say that the, the integration somehow can only happen when there is understanding and acceptance towards the culture and also the language. And I think here, uh, more and more schools and communities, and uh, including also companies, are embracing diversity in cultures and languages. So they're moving away from considering the monolingual, monocultural as the norm. As for my clients in my practice, um, I usually start from the core family, so from the inside out, if you want. But as, of course, I also need to consider the broader community, the, the society where they live in, so the, the macro society, if you want. So to help this, of course, as I mentioned before, something that is really helpful is if the partner is on the same uh, page. But... Coming back to your question, is it country-specific? I think it's situation-specific. Uh, where you live in the country, uh, how the society around you is responding to you being different and coming from a different country and speaking another language. And what I always say, and here I adopt an African saying, to my purpose, uh, you need a multilingual village to raise a multilingual child. So what can you find where you live Who can you find where you live who can be supportive of the languages that you need in your family, which is the first world, so to say, for very young ones, um, where we start with. And also in the meso or macro society, so in the groups that you are in, the schools and in the broader community. So trying to find out how to find helpers for your language is one of the first tasks that I give parents. So to make a list, who is there? And how long will they be on the same page and in the picture? So is it only for the first year or for two years or five years? Because many families have maybe uh, au pairs or nannies or a grandma who lives with them, but then they, they move abroad and everything changes. So taking this into account is also very important. And uh, to have these short and longer uh, term goals And uh, to be a bit realistic about the situation, I, I often see parents who are multilinguals themselves, they want, oh, well, I speak five languages and my uh, partner speaks other four. Let's just shower our children with all these languages. And then I say, okay, that's very nice. It's, uh, it's amazing. But what are the languages that your child actually needs? And how is your child responding? I mean, in the first half year, a year or two, Maybe they're not responding in a way that you can make further plans. But uh, if you really focus on the communication skills of the child, what kind of communication style do you have as parent, your partner, the community and your child? And that's a bit complex, but it's uh, highly interesting for me. Yeah, no, you're completely right. I completely agree that it's, it's very interesting. And you mentioned that the child has... Um something to say about this as well right especially the older it gets it might have formed their own opinions on like i actually really don't enjoy speaking this language especially when you know other factors as friends and school and 
you know, pop culture, when all of that comes into the picture, it might get even more problematic. So you have to take all of that into account. And I, I think it's great that there is actual like resources and people that you can ask if you have these questions. So, uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for doing this. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Maybe I can add something else because sometimes we think that, uh, highly international places are, uh, or multilingual places are, uh, more language friendly, but they are not necessarily intrinsically language friendly for all the languages, maybe only for some of them. And uh, also in these kind of places, for example, The Hague, I live near The Hague, uh, we have many international schools and uh, multilingual families tend to send their children to these international schools uh, with the aim of uh, raising multilinguals, right? But what about the local language then? So we sometimes start uh, with some goals in mind and then might not find the reaction or it might not go in that direction that we expected at the beginning. So I think it pretty much depends on, on what your family language goals are. Yeah, and that's very individual. So I actually have a question about your children. Um, I know that, Corina, your children are quite young, so they're four and two, you mentioned, so they might not have made a decision. But uh, Ute, your children are teenagers, right? Do they like the same languages like do they share or are they different for each of them they are different uh they all share english and german uh to the same extent more or less but i have one daughter she doesn't like german that much she prefers english and that's fine but she also speaks german and she reads german and she speaks german with the extended family so uh let's say That is what she needs at the moment. But uh, I had some discussions with her and we were talking about her language preferences and it's fine. She she's not so language oriented like uh, my other two children, uh, whereas my my son is very interested in languages, um, generally speaking. So he's curious about them. He wants to learn more. He tries to compare them. So his perspective is is different from the one of his sister's. And my other daughter, she um, also likes Dutch very much. She has a lot of Dutch friends. So although they all grow up in the same situation, almost same linguistic situation and, and social situation that we are in, they have different preferences. Some parents consider it disorienting because it's not like what you maybe expect. But I find it very interesting and I decided very early on that I support them with whatever decision they make. And as I said before, what I focus mostly on is to have an effective communication that we really keep the communication and the connection as strong as possible. Yeah, that's that's very important. But I, I can see why that might be disorienting for some parents, because you can't plan that, right? And that's where the flexibility comes back in. Yeah. No, no, you can't. And I must say, I have also the experience that I refuse to speak my parents' language for several years twice during my life. So I know um, what to expect. And I know also that this can be, I would say, reversed because it's nothing negative. It is a development. It's a process that we go through. I'm uh, confident about is we, we gave them all the tools that they need. So whenever they need to uh, implement their the language skills, they will have the tools. And this is all that we parents, I think, can do. Yeah, that's perfect. Now, Corina, you mentioned that your daughter like plays in English or have you have you observed any preferences in her maybe? Yes, she definitely prefers uh, to speak in English. She doesn't do it with us, but she does it with her sister a lot. So when they play, the two of them, she uses English. What I do then when I listen to them, you know, I go in the playroom and I say something in Greek and then maybe see my sweets. But yes, definitely she prefers it. Of course, she's confident to speak Greek and English, but yeah, definitely it's her preference. But it's, I guess it's normal. She spends the day at the school. The other day she came at home after school and she explained to her dad, I had a video of this, it's very cute. She explained how we can put seeds, water, sun and soil to make some plants. Uh, of course, she didn't have the vocabulary in Spanish. She was speaking with her dad. So she explained everything in English, which is absolutely fine. I know that with time, uh, next time probably we go to play outside, we can use what she learned, but use our languages. So she will have the vocabulary. So we are quite relaxed with this because we know it's a lot happening, a lot of learning happening in, uh, for her. 
and we are here to support us as, as uh, Uta mentioned earlier I'm not going to force her you know it's it's well in that case it's not her decision she's quite young but I know how to help her but I understand and I respect um, her preferences now of course she doesn't understand that she choose uh, this language but we totally understand yeah oh that must be so interesting to see them grow up and the languages evolve and change and like I would oh yeah for me it would probably just be like language acquisition research but I would I would love to just like observe that that's that's really interesting yeah and it's 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 great also I have you know sometimes I take when I have time I take notes of what they say and it's very interesting also the syntaxes you know the other day she said can I have uh, something to play with but she said it in Spanish everything and this with was at the end con and it doesn't really make sense in Spanish, but it was very cute because we know how she thinks. We know sometimes she translates. So it's really nice to see, you know, the linguistic development. Wow. Can you can you say how she said it in Spanish? Yes, she said, um, Puedo tener algo jugar con. Puedo tener algo jugar con. Yeah, that was, that was very cute. Oh, that's adorable. Yeah. And you can, you can totally see where the transfer comes from. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That, that was also one of the issues that my, one of my daughter had. She would, uh, use the English syntax for German and the German syntax structure for English. And this was where then the teachers were saying, we have a problem. And I said, no, we don't. <laughs> this is just her way to uh, to learn the language and to make sense of the, out of them. And uh, after a while, it was gone. I mean, she she sorted her pieces and she could then uh, articulate the, the sentences in the correct order in both languages. But of course, for this, we, we need to be aware of what basic structure there is in the different languages the child is exposed to. And um, if a teacher or a health practitioner or anyone else is not aware of this, then they will uh, point out that it's a problem. And this uh, being a problem for a child can be very detrimental for their development, overall development, because giving them the, the impression there is something wrong with me is not nice. So this is, I think, where we have to empower parents and say, no, stand up for your child and make sure that they get the help that they need and that the people who are giving the help are actually also knowing what they're doing. I know I'm very strict on that, but I have my experience with that. No, I think it's very, very important that you emphasize that. I was about to ask whether you could clarify that what uh, Corina's daughter is doing, that it's not problematic at all, because we can, I mean, especially when you speak both language, if you speak Spanish and English, and you can kind of tell where the transfer is coming from. It's adorable, right? We can say like, oh, that's cute, because we also as experts know that it's going to stabilize eventually. But people who A, might not know the languages, or B, might not be educated in language learning and language acquisition and how it goes, might actually flag that as a problem, as a potential, you know, source of confusion even, right? Yeah, no, I was about to say that I think that many parents are very worried. That's why I said it's nice if you get informed when you're expecting a bilingual baby, uh, because they're very worried. Sometimes it's not just the syntax, it's also the the grammar that they mix together. So my daughter, many times, she says, instead of playing, she says, playando, she uses this ing, but from, from Spanish. So, you know, a parent who is not very sure if they're doing the correct thing or not, they might say, oh, no one is going to understand them in the daycare. If she needs something, they're no, not going to bring it to her. Uh, so I think it's a very common worry, let's say, for multilingual parents. Yes, absolutely. But I would like to point out anyways also the fact that for parents who worry and where the children uh, are not able to form sentences, age-appropriate sentences, I might say, in the respective languages for a longer time, it's better to search for help, at least to have them assessed or to ask someone, a professional, is this still in the norm or should I worry there are some, some signs for that. As parents, we are anyways uh, observing their development and we have somehow this gut feeling there's something not right at some point. But if this gut feeling comes from a place where we are informed and we are knowledgeable, it is different than when this gut feeling comes from <laughs> a place of fear or worry in the first place. So I think being informed is the first thing to do, yes. There's no shame in asking for help at all. Absolutely not. And I think that's a very, very good point. So uh, moving on, we actually got a couple of questions from our 
listeners from the podcast community. And Paloma sent us a question and asked how much input is needed for each language because exposure matters, right? Yes, it does matter. But uh, usually to this question, I have a long list of questions myself. So I would ask something like, what language are we talking about? Is this now the L1 or LA or L alpha language? So the first language that you're speaking with your child, or is it an additional language? Is this a language uh, my child needs on a daily basis, or is it a nice to have one? How old is the child? What are the language goals? <laughs> Who can provide the input in these languages? <laughs> so you see, I go on and on. How does the child respond to the language? How, yeah, it depends, of course, how old it is, if the child is verbal already or not. And uh, again, what communication style do you as parents have and what communication style does a child have, which is very, very important when it comes to fostering not only understanding, but also speaking of the language. So, yes, how much? <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing there's no clear-cut answer. <laughs> No, it's not in the number. So if the languages uh, are not needed by the child on an everyday basis and in everyday interactions, or if the, the child doesn't get the needed exposure in it to reach the language goals, or if uh, the child lacks motivation, then uh, these are the languages that aren't too many. So focus on those where the child has a need, is motivated, gets enough exposure and qualitative high exposure. So not only put on your jacket and uh, <laughs> clean up your room, but meaningful conversations where you can uh, have turns each one and when you, where you can explore together the vocabulary that the child is building. Yeah. Yeah, for me, uh, input is very important as well. When raising multilinguals, I believe you need to be very realistic with your plans and goals. So it's crucial the quantity and the quality of, of the exposure. You know, each child has in its language. And I say each child because sometimes they don't have the same exposure between siblings, I mean. And yes, of course, as a mom, I would love them. I'm, I'm talking about my experience and my family. I would love them to be able to speak and write in five or six different languages, but How realistic is it? So I believe in my family, we don't have enough time for this because our goals and our plan for Greek and Spanish is for them to read, uh, be able to write as well, maybe one day study in those, you know, in these languages. So at the moment, at the ages they have, it's not realistic. I believe it's something that has to do with each family. It's, it's something very personal, I believe. I'm sure that resonates with a lot of people. Yeah, that makes sense. So we got another question on Instagram from Caro, who asks, what is a good strategy for the parents for talking to each other when the kids are present, but not addressed? So for the, for the parents to decide on a mutual language, or would it be, is it a good idea to switch? Or do you have to stick with the language? Or would it be confusing? Um, and I'm sure that's, uh, that's a question that a lot of bilingual, multilingual parents ask themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, let me go to the first part of the question. So about the good strategy to use uh, for parents talking to each other. So it depends on the parents again. <laughs> Do they both speak each other's language and uh, the age of the children? So are we talking about babies, toddlers or are they verbal already? So in multilingual families where both parents speak uh, another language, usually they opt for OPAL, for one person, one language strategy. But as soon as the children are then verbal and contribute to the conversation in the family, for example, around the dinner table, <laughs> the strategies uh, need to be adjusted somehow. So families then either opt for one of the parents' languages as family language. And here I usually suggest, if this is possible, that they use a minority language because it's the one who is uh, more likely to suffer once the children go to school, uh, etc., And using the minority language also helps to increase the exposure of the language and sends the child the great message that that language is valuable. Or they choose a third language to speak among them. So this third language is one that their children will need to learn to understand too, as conversations around the table, as I said, will otherwise become challenging because <laughs> the conversation won't flow. So communication needs to flow and uh, everyone needs to keep engaged. About choosing one language, um, consistency is the key, especially when children are younger and have to understand how the language works, yeah? how communication works, what word and phrase belongs to what language, then it's better if the parents 
can manage to be more consistent in their language use. I mean, in multilingual families, we do switch. It's just normal. We switch from one language to the other. We do mix when we are tired, when things need to be said and done quickly. That's very normal. But if a parent then realizes, okay, I, I do this 90% of the time, then maybe you want to sit down and say, okay, I have to work on that. And I see that many parents think about this problem even before having children, and I find this amazing. Yeah. <laughs> they, they train themselves before the child is even born. And this is a great start because once a child is born, you have so many things on your plate. You cannot focus on also on language uh, or on shifting your language use and paying attention to this. So, and when children are older and are fluent in all languages, you can opt for the time and place strategy, for example, where you then choose to uh, speak one language in given situations. No, yeah, that's a great answer. I, I just have a question now that I come to think of it, because I know that you and your husband speak German, right? Um, except mm -hmm. for Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> We switch to other languages. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. The switch, yeah. But um, Corina mentioned that uh, you and your husband, you speak Spanish to each other, right? That's your love language. Uh, yes, it is. Although, let's say, if we have dinner uh, all together, my husband speaks Greek, so that helps a lot. So I speak to the girls in Greek and he can participate. Most times he replies in Spanish. So I speak my language, he speaks his language, but everyone understands perfectly because he's Greek it's quite well. Actually, for a Spanish person, it's impressive. So we have common languages. We don't need to use a third language. But here, I need to say that my Spanish, it's, it's much better, much quicker than his Greek. And also I can express myself in Spanish. I can say everything, my feelings, everything I want to say to my girls or, or to my husband. So it doesn't happen with English. So when I speak English to my girls, it's very weird, you know, because I don't feel it like my language, but I do feel it with Spanish. So many times went up in, in the dinner table that I mentioned before, speaking more Spanish than Greek. But when we speak Greek as well, he understands. So everyone participates and the conversation flows very well, which is the, the main object, of course. But yeah, it's, it's so nice and the dynamic is so good when parents share the same languages. Even our fourth language is the same. So even one day if they learn French, we share this with my husband as well. So it's, I think for a consultant, we might be the ideal scenario. I don't know who <laughs> knows better, no? Yes, absolutely. Yes, it's a very good uh, example to give. You know, if you have uh, successful families who juggle these languages and where actually you create the best environment within your home, Uh, to foster all the languages. It's actually what we wish for the communities could do as well, right? So that you can switch, you can share different languages without being judged or without um, having any problems to understand each other. But we can do this in our families. This is possible. So <laughs> it's great. Yeah, that would be the ideal scenario. So we do have one more question, and that's about literacy development. We got that question from Joe. So how do you best support literacy development in multilingual children when they speak more than two languages? And maybe even because, you know, we have a Spanish, English, Greek family at the table here where there's different alphabets involved, right? So uh, how would you go about that? Generally speaking, you, you would start from the very beginning in the pre-literacy phase already. Because, well, oral language is a substrate for literacy. And this is a study by Christensen, Zubrick, Lawrence, Mitru and Taylor, let's say it. And preschool children with very strong receptive vocabularies tend to have better listening comprehension, word recognition and reading comprehension in the later primary years. And I like always to refer to Holly Scarborough's uh, reading rope. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Uh, she's a leading researcher of early language development and its connection to later literacy. So with three languages, of course, are they transparent languages like Spanish or rather like Polish? Do they have the same alphabet? And I think uh, Corina can tell us more about that. But research also shows us that children as young as four years old can distinguish between different scripts, even if they can't read yet. So I think the, the recognition of different scripts and the fostering the oral language fluency is key for a more successful literacy development later on in all the languages. So fostering these from the very beginning is crucial. So Corinna, maybe you can tell us more about uh, phonological awareness. 
Yes, of course. Uh, well, uh, in our case, we're in the preschool phase. So what we do, we read a lot at home. Uh, we started from day one, and I think this is very important. Some parents say, but why do you read? It's just the baby. But I think it really helps. Uh, our older daughter knows well if a book is in mommy's language or daddy's language. She's used to it because I'm reading in Greek. My husband reads in uh, in Spanish. So she can recognize different alphabets. She loves to play with sounds and words. When I asked for some help was when I, I said, how do I refer to a letter? Do I say, you know, the phoning? Do I say, you know, kappa? Do I say k? How do I refer to this? So this is when I asked for help, for some help. Because I wasn't sure if I'm doing the correct thing. I don't want to get confused. But I realized that actually, you know, some posters can help. You know, when we read the book, it's not just reading the book for the story. She also sees the letter. We write now her name. Uh, she can write her name in Greek and in uh, with um, Latin characters as well, in Spanish and in English. We say a lot of stories together. So she helps me to make stories. We do a role play quite a lot. I think it helps. And even when, if I have time and we write together a shopping list, of course, I cannot write now. But I say to her, why don't you draw? If it is, I don't know, a fruit, I say the fruit and she has to draw. So then I ask her, can you please read your list to me? Of course, it's just with drawings, but, you know, it helps her realize that we start reading and everything. We have found in our family, it works very well. We play a lot of that game. It's the veo veo. It's the equivalent of I spy with my little eye in English. And we play it a lot. We spend months playing this. And I have seen how she, she has improved, you know, recognizing the letters, the sounds. Sometimes, of course, we play it in, in Spanish. And she says it starts with A. And she means A in Spanish or with I. Uh, sorry, she means it in English. So it can get confused in that age. But it really helped her, you know, to realize all the sounds and words. And we are quite open. I'm, I'm not stressed out now about, oh, how is he going to learn everything? It's a different alphabet. She will, I'm confident she will, with the right guidance. Uh, this is how I believe. She already recognized. So I believe this is already something that we have achieved together. Yes, and I, I think it's also important for parents who um, maybe have as language goals that their children will become also pluriliterate so that they can uh, read and write in all their languages, that they make realistic goals and that they are aware that reading and writing is not a natural skill like understanding and speaking, but it needs formal instruction. But you can start already with this phonological awareness and as uh, Corina just said, including all kind of resources that are rhyming, nursery rhymes that have alliteration and that focus on different sentence structures and syllables, onsets and rhymes, etc. from very early on. So it becomes a bit more natural and, and makes them also motivated at some point to, to understand where the finger is pointing at in the book if that letter is maybe the first letter of their name, etc. and go ahead from there. And you can do this also across uh, different scripts and languages, of course. But I think parents have to decide also what they want to take on in this literacy teaching part of the language development of their children and what they want to hand over to the school. Because many parents say, okay, let's wait first for the children to learn how to read and write in school. And then maybe we can foster also the home languages it's something to, to decide and to think about carefully. Uh, yeah, so those were great, great points. And I'm sure it's helpful for our listeners, especially if they're in a similar phase or maybe have kids that are the same age. So now that we're nearing the end of the episode, uh, we usually have a question about what projects our guests are working on. So do you want to tell us what the future holds? What projects are coming up for you? Do you want to plug anything? Well, uh, as mentioned earlier, I have been teaching languages for 10 years now. My passion is language learning. And since I became a mom, I'm very interested in raising multilinguals. As mentioned earlier, again, a result of this is that I'm involved in many activities like the Pitch Project. And uh, next year, I'm going to study a Master in Applied Multilingualism, and I'm very excited about it. In the future, I would love to support some families in their multilingual journey. Perfect. I think that's all for me. <laughs> a bit personal, but yeah. No, that's that's super that's super interesting. And good luck with your studies. That's amazing. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. 
<laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. I would be too. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I am still collaborating. I will still collaborate with uh, Rita Rosenbach and Multilingual Parenting at the Peach Project. Uh, as I said, we're working on a guide for educators. I also published a, a book. It's a two books for multilingual families together with Ana Elisa Miranda, which is uh, where we selected 123 activities and games to foster understanding, speaking, reading, and writing in uh, children between zero and uh, 15 years old. That's available on Amazon. And there we are publishing now also a workbook that comes with it and some videos uh, that I will publish on my YouTube channel. So I am actually recording now a series of videos for my YouTube channel for parents who raise their children cross-culturally and with multiple languages uh, that is also focusing on effective communication with young children and then also with teenagers, etc. So... As for my future plans, there will definitely be some other books and we will continue with our broadcast, Raising Multilingual Life. So I think I, I will just continue where I am and the future will tell where it leads us. Yeah, that's that's perfect. So there's there's a lot happening in both of your lives. That's exciting. Perfect. So for our listeners, we mentioned a lot of projects and websites and people in this episode. And if you want to get in touch with either Ute or the Preach Project, you can find the links in the episode description, for example. But you can also head over to our website, mlstpodcast.com, to find all the other links and resources. As I mentioned in the beginning, there's also a transcript for each episode. We also have a glossary for unfamiliar terminology. And you can leave reviews, which would help us a lot. So thanks in advance. But uh, yeah, that's it. Thanks so much for listening and make sure to tune in next time. As always, stay safe, stay healthy and... Ciao.